1: Hello and welcome to Matt D'Elia is Confused. This is Matt D'Elia and this week's guest is an information warfare expert. Her name is Molly McHugh and I've been reading her work and following her on Twitter for a while um, and she is incredibly good at making very, very, very complicated things seem uncomplicated and clear so i really really wanted her on the show to talk to her about some of the shit that she knows so much about the conversation turned into something much broader and wider in scope than just information warfare i mean a lot of the reason i wanted to talk to molly was her expertise in sort of the the um the way in which the tactics that um russia employs to spread disinformation in america and why they do that but uh the conversation happily takes uh many turns into many many interesting areas all of which um i find extremely fascinating and important and in many respects confusing um so consider me unconfused on many of these topics thank you molly for coming on the show it was a Great conversation. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I hope you guys like it as much as I like doing it. Here is my conversation with information warfare expert, Molly McHugh. Okay.
2: You
0: know, I... I have a background in, in Russia studies more than anything else, and uh, ended up working at a think tank. Um, and then the wars started, uh, thus aging myself, but um, uh, so I ended up doing Middle East and North Africa for a, a while, and then sort of went and did some consulting work in West Africa, sort of found my way back to the former Soviet Union just after the war between Russia and Georgia in 2008. Mm. Um, and it was this really fascinating time period to sort of be in the region watching what Russia was doing, because while they hadn't lost the Georgian War, they also didn't win the Georgian War. Mm-hmm. And that period afterward was this time period where there was this sort of internal refocus on uh, in Russia on what went wrong, what does this mean? Mm. And one side of that was um, purely focused on kind of the hard power issues, like our crappy Soviet-era conscript army sucks, how do we fix it? And coming out of that, you see... Um, Sort of an intense focus on logistics, uh, the new development of all the weapon systems that we've seen in Syria and elsewhere and in Ukraine, um, and then uh, a renewed focus on sort of special forces capability troops to sort of fill the gaps, uh, these like huge battalions of, of special forces guys. Um, uh, so that they don't have to worry about the crappiness of the conscript Mm. army anymore. So that was sort of one side of the equation. But the other side that they were much more focused on, because a key part of what they were trying to do in Georgia in 2008 was win the information more quickly so that they could win concrete targets um, in their tactical approach to the war, which they failed on, um, was how do we do this without tanks?
2: Mm. And that was
0: where you see this new focus from the Kremlin on all of the aspects of sort of political warfare and influence that we have become very focused on in the past three or four years. Um, but the investments into RT and sort of foreign language state media, um, the ability to influence um, the conversation and narrative both internally and abroad, um, all the the sort of aspects of, of cultural influence and compatriot influence and, and political influence that have been discussed in Europe and, and abroad as well, Um, But then in this time period, you really see them focusing on having watched how Obama won in 2008, having begun to understand how critical social media can be to reaching audiences and shaping the landscape quickly. You really see this intense focus in that realm of um, sort of using social media, um, the idea of micro-targeting, the idea of sort of sculpting information to reach specific groups. Mm -hmm. Um, So working in Georgia in that period... After the the Russian War, um, Georgia really became an early laboratory of uh, Russia's renewed um, experimentation with updated, modernized political warfare and information warfare tools, which we didn't really understand until after the election right. in 2012, when the Russian oligarch mm-hmm. won the election in the country. Right. Um. But but after that was really when um, we had to come sort of come straight up against this and understand what had happened and look at what that meant and all of the things that we saw in Georgia in 2011 and 2012 uh, in retrospect mostly um but all of the things that we sort of saw them doing in terms of narrative and tactics and tools and procedures um were things that we then saw roll out more broadly in Europe and beyond um and I think it's that that sort of gave us a focus on uh, well, we really need to learn about what this means and how they're doing it. Um, so it was sort of, I, I learned because I was standing right in front of right. it and got run over by it a couple of times, right. <laughs> which I know is uh, not necessarily the shortest answer to your question. Um, no, but but yeah. I was fortunate to have smart teachers, um, many of whom were uh, intelligence guys who were sort of you know deep in the Soviet mystique of all this, so mm. knew the history of... Uh, sort of KGB disinformation and and tactics and all of that and how that all connects to the the sort of updated approach um, and so I think you you learn because you have to stand there and watch it and either you believe that it works and because you see how it how it affects uh, populations or you don't um, so right. I decided to learn how it worked
1: <laughs> right yeah I mean it gives you a, a genuinely unique perspective and I, I something I find odd that I think so, someone in your position who is obviously rare unique to you I I, I think that. People can listen to something in this realm and think, well, that either that doesn't work or that's just that's not really a thing like this idea of like hybrid warfare, which I know you, is a term that you've, you've used before. And it, But this idea that this kind of propagandistic stuff, how much does it really work? You know, coming from your point of view, you've actually literally seen it on the ground in a micro way and in a macro way. And I find just the whole sort of politicization of the whole idea of information warfare as like, you know, because now I think the way pe- the way people know it now, I think the way most people came to it is is really sort of the way I came to it, which is that it's the 2016 election, and everybody sort of looks at that and thinks, well, how much did Russia really affect what happened? And da 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 da. But it also it's almost like the very idea. That this something like this could work is thrust into question uh and and but you have literally seen it on the ground in front of you f- for a while, and you also are recognizing it now happening to us, you know, and I think that that f- puts you in a unique position to say, no, 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 this is a fucking real thing, you know this is a real thing, and I've seen it work, and it actually is and can will probably continue to work on us and I guess What I'm curious about, um, and I think another criticism people talk about, is that this is nothing new. But I think – what do do you say to that? Because while that's true, there are new elements of it now that make it uniquely dangerous to our time now.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because the two things that you were just talking about are like sort of the key pillars of the you should doubt all of this is real purveyors. Right. And they sort of contradict each other, which is always amazing. Right. Um, these are long established sort of tactics and traditions of disinformation and intelligence and deception, whatever you want to call them, um influenced more broadly, um, even not by foreign intelligence, but how you uh you know, change narratives and impact audiences in domestic environments and with politics and winning narratives and telling stories. So these are sort of established tactics that we all accept happen and are real. Right. And then it's like, oh, but they don't work and they don't impact. Me. <laughs> right. And right. I think this is really the key thing that has been really difficult because, you know, as you say, these are things, even if you look at just the straight, uh, you know, propaganda lane or what we would qualify as information warfare lanes, mm-hmm. um, things that include intense disinformation and deception targeting specific audiences, for specific purposes that relate to strategic goals, um, even if you just look at those pieces, um, the the tools and the approach to uh, to having these campaigns have advanced so rapidly and have increased so completely. If you listen to the sort of KGB defector videos and recordings from the seventies and eighties, when uh, some of the guys who were sort of critical to these types of information campaigns came out and defected to the West and kind of
2: explain yeah.
0: how they worked um, in terms of uh, uh, projecting messages, recruiting uh, like-minded folk abroad, et cetera, et cetera. There's really, I mean, they have really detailed, extremely basic ways of of talking about this, but um, it sounds a lot like what's happening now. The thing that's different is in all of what they were talking about, um, it was, you know, a decade or a generation. To win an argument. And that was what they were focused on. Mm-hmm. That was the timeline that the Soviets were focused on when they were looking at changing um, the dynamics in the West because it was sort of, you have to develop your own outlets and you have to develop people in those outlets and you have to develop relationships abroad and then you get people to start listening to your arguments and eventually they start listening to other parts of your argument. And then slowly over time you have people who will accept what you say and then all of a sudden you can win.
2: Right.
0: And the difference between 1975 and um now is really just how we get information and um the the quickness with which both you know 24-hour broadcast news um and the impact of social media on us and on news uh, as a secondary item um has accelerated the cycle of information and accelerated the way that we consume information and accelerated the way that we Either reinforce or um, change our beliefs mm-hmm. um, is is really a, in, a critical difference. And I think the way that, particularly the Russians that we have seen, we've seen, um, you know, the Chinese have been doing it for different means. That's adapting now. Uh, the Iranians and others are, are definitely in the space. Uh, you know, I think the last report on this was something like ninety-five countries are definitely doing their own sort right. of receptive information operations online. But with the Russians being sort of uh, You know, uh, pioneers in the space, Um, the things that were the most successful were not these Internet Research Agency ad campaigns, although that's certainly an aspect. Um, It's the 25 other pillars of how they do information that were more important. The investments in uh, things like RT and Sputnik and Rupply, uh things that sort of propagate little packaged news stories abroad mm-hmm. quickly, investments in other outlets uh, like In the Now News and stuff like that, that that look like not Russian media but are in fact Russian state media um, that have these more uh, often sort of, you know, anti it, on the left it's sort of anti-war, pro-environment, mm-hmm. uh, anti-government messages. On the right it's like anti-government, you know, pro-police, whatever messages. Um, so there's those things, and then all the think tanks that they sponsor and all the academics that they sponsor that feed into that whole space. But there's also the online conversation where, yeah. yes, RT has a huge YouTube presence and all of that, but it's these the aspect that's really been not highlighted enough from uh, 2016, from how they work here in Europe and other places, from what has been most successful when people try to copy what they are doing and, and replicate these campaigns abroad. It's these false identity accounts, essentially. Mm. But but things that are supposed to look like you and your neighbors, that you accept and believe. Um, in 2016, the two, like, most easily distinguished groups were the, you know, MAGA MAGA, American mm-hmm. Flag Eagle, Second Amendment, Veterans Wife. Right. I Love Jesus accounts <laughs> that were all, you know, many of them within some realm of that identity package. Yeah um that were amplifying pro Trump messages, anti Hillary messages, um, not using IRA, the Internet Research Agency memes, but but news stories and um you know content and claims and rumors and whatever else. But they looked like people like you. It's a guy from Wisconsin right. and so why not? Um, and, and how disarming that is to us and how we perceive and evaluate information, where it seems like it's a person saying it, you're much more likely to believe something your neighbor says to you than some news outlet somewhere you've never heard of, and just how disarming that is and right. sort of getting into our own confirmation bias and past our self-defenses on information. Um, so I think that's really important. On the left, there was the exact same thing happening with um, the Bernie Bot Network, right. but um, where it was these sort of same themes of... Hillary sucks, anti-government, new generation, we need vast change. And the similarity of those messages was actually really interesting to look at in many respects. Mm. But um, we've talked a lot more about the one side and not so much the other. But anyway, I think that's that's kind of this whole aspect of the very gray manipulation of conversation. And there's like 10,000 examples of that that you can point to that are so hard to... Get people to accept and unravel. You know these bizarre, well-established historical narrative accounts where it's like ninety-five percent Soviet nostalgia pictures. They're kind of funny, and then there's right. like the five percent that's trying to change your mind about what caused World War Two. Right. Um, and the same way they do that with these false identity uh, or you know anonymous American history accounts where it's like ninety-five percent stuff about the Civil War, and all of a sudden it's like weird modern political commentary. Right. Um. And 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 ha- the, the importance of things like that, of like building audience, you know, building information, architecture, and then exploiting it when needed is just something we continue to deny is important. Right. And it's so silly because it's what every media outlet and political person ever has tried to do in order to win.
1: Yeah, it's like the oldest. So we know that it works. <laughs> yeah, it's like the oldest <laughs> technique. I wouldn't even call it a trick. It's just an, a, a, a tried and true technique of, of absolutely of that sort of conversation and politics and everything like that I mean it goes way 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 back and I want to I want to sort of so I think that when you when when you think of it in the context of in the 2016 election when we're the when you see when you're looking at the apparatus and you're and you're and you're noticing that it's it's not only pro-Trump stuff but it's also pro-Bernie stuff I think it sort of gets into like because I think for a lot of people that might be a little bit removed from global politics in general might just say their, their sort of skepticism might be rooted in like, well, why would they even do that? You know, and I think the why starts to become a bit clearer when it's not just trying to get Trump necessarily Trump in office, but it's this very specifically sort of vague, broad anti this one party, this one person, you know, and I think that, that the why sort of becomes a little clearer can can you talk a little bit about the like the the why are they doing this in like the most macro way
0: the goal has always been um to and and sort of the the 50,000 foot talking points that everybody's been repeating the last few years but sort of inflame division uh create distrust of our own institutions of our own nation etc um that is very real. And I just think that we still haven't looked at what those things actually mean. Like, they're really nice 50,000-foot talking Mm -hmm. points, but what does that mean on a tactical ground level? And I think the left in particular in the United States um, has not really looked at how their narratives have also been sort of infiltrated and exploited by Mm. foreign actors, particularly the Russians, when it is useful to them. Right. Um, The Chinese are also very good at this, in particular in promoting these sort of like Hey, you know, democracies suck at addressing climate change, but authoritarian states are real great at it.
2: Look what China's done. Right. And you just sort of
0: look at stuff people post sometimes and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that person is literally posting Russian or like Chinese state media and not really understanding what they're doing. So I mean, there's just there's things where we have our own confirmation bias where we don't really look at where information is coming from and we just agree with it essentially. And and that means reposting or liking or or whatever. Um and that's unfortunate because we help those outlets build audience with those narratives, and then they use it for other purposes as well. So, I just think when it comes to the what, like what the Russians were trying to do, the goals have always very much been the same, which is, you know, create distrust within our society, which is is done more easily by inflaming division, uh, making us look chaotic and unstable, making us believe that democracy is no better form of government than any other form of government. It's all just the same elite you know focused mm-hmm. nonsense and um i think if you look at what that has looked like since 1965 and listen to how we discuss ourselves now it's a little bit eerie and this is not to say the united states is a nation without flaw mm-hmm. uh or that everything is perfect and wonderful or that all of our politicians are great uh and and absent conflicts of interest but um mm-hmm. i think this the erosion of the belief that a system of participatory government is somehow important to who we are Mm -hmm. and how that informs our position in the world the erosion of the belief that that's a thing Mm
2: -hmm. is really
0: concerning to me. And you sometimes see these ridiculous polls about how millennials believe in communism and not capitalism or whatever. And we know a lot of that is crap because like, they don't even know what that really means. And it just sounds like a nice thing. And yes, it would be nice if we were all in like a Robin Hood society, (laughs) like sure, fine, whatever. But I just think there hasn't been enough confrontation to people, particularly since younger generations have sort of grown up in the forever war slash no war environment. Um, of never really having to question these things, never really, you know, having a period of of serious uh, financial decline, you know, never really having these periods of of confrontation, of really understanding that democracy is important. And what we're up against right now is kind of this China-Russia aligned axis of, and, and no, they are not perfect allies on everything, but yes, they very much operate and exploit each other in the same space. But this kind of new you know, data-driven, digital, dystopia, authoritarian universe where all the tools of technology that can be wonderful and connective and freeing are also tools of oppression and control. Um, And there's vast advantage for authoritarian countries that are trying to develop them and deploy them, as we see in China now. Um, And where we're just not really accepting that we are, in fact, still the head of the movement that isn't that. If we're not in that space fighting for things like individuals matter, individual rights matter, human rights matter, all of the things that we've sort of lost the definition of in the concept of liberal democratic values, which no one wants to define or fight for anymore, Um, when we don't understand that we are important in that movement, and when you see some of our most significant national companies um, also sort of being in the space of not really caring about those things Mm -hmm. or believing that they have a role in those debates, um, I think we're really screwed. And I just think everybody needs to take a deep breath and refocus on the fact that we don't want to live in a, chi- in a, in a you know, China social credit, sorry, you have the wrong DNA, go to the concentration camp now right. universe. Um, and that's kind of the brink of, of what we're on. And unfortunately, this does all start with the information warfare, information operations conversation, and kind of rapidly slide into this bizarre science fiction-sounding dystopia world but it's very much the same tools backing these things. Um, and I think the idea of of information control as a, as a necessary component of population control and behavioral engineering that's now being done online um, is just so important to accept because we see it many places. And while we have obsessed in great detail about Trump and to some extent Brexit, although the Brits still don't want to talk about that, yeah. um, and a few other sort of specific campaigns, there's been almost no conversation about the way... Companies like Cambridge Analytica and SCL or very similar to offering very similar tools to uh, using Facebook help um, have been helping um, ruling parties stay in power in Africa. And the impact that that will have overall on African democracy over time, which is just, you know, reinforcing power structures, making it harder to challenge established powers, um, limiting the role of opposition movements, um, you know, building de facto quiet internal police states. Like we just aren't having the conversation about the stuff in the way that we have to and need to. yeah. Because um, it's not just about whether or not we like Facebook and whether or not Facebook is nice and fun, right. but um, this really is about human freedom and how we want to go into the next era of incredible technology and incredible developments that are happening um, and what do we believe in when we're facing these incredible challenges do, of our own sort of ethics and morals that are inevitably coming?
1: Right. Do you think that – because it, it feels like almost like a blind spot where people don't want to confront the, uh, the possibility that them alone on their device or on their computer can be manipulated. I think that there's this idea that it's, it's a free – they're free to go wherever they want on the internet, on social media, whatever. They can look at anything they want and i feel like there might be this blind spot where where there's there's a there's a lack of not even a lack of understanding but a lack of a willingness or an awareness of the possibility to confront the the idea that you might not be really the the master of your own destiny when you're just sitting there at your computer you're, you you know what i mean like i feel like people there's this almost block to this possibility that they're being Driven to think something, you know, because to believe in propaganda be- or to believe in the information warfare thing, you have to believe that people, yourself included, are are malleable and easily manipulated. And I think that it's just this deep discomfort, creating this blind spot that 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 there's like this unwillingness to to, to really consider that because of the the overwhelming implications of that, you know. And I think that's sort of tied into something you talked about a little bit, which is that. The the internet is not just this this free space where you know you can find the information you want and everybody's just sort of of the same mind you know they're, they're, it's not just a democratic institution it's not just the democratization of information there's also there's been this backdoor authoritarianism thing that has really sprung forward and shown its teeth that I think people really 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 did not expect or anticipate and I think people are having a hard time catching up to that reality, you know? Um, and I think that, they're, they're, that people aren't really catching or keeping an eye on that back door. And I, because there's, there's this weird apathy thing that, that, that some of the stuff you were talking about before, I kept thinking about the word apathy, you know, they're trying, the, infra, the, the goal is to, to, is not to make us think one thing the the goal is to not to make us think no thing almost, you know, it's almost like it's, it's, it's to create the chaos and confusion so that we don't feel strongly about anything. And it makes me think you mentioned Cambridge Analytica. Uh, and this is where I first heard of this story. The thing that happened in Trinidad and Tobago, that the, the, uh, mm-hmm. the apathy uh, th- that they, that was, that was able to be created. It, it, it struck me as particularly disturbing because again it's not putting forth a particular ideology all it's saying is really don't vote don't don't engage that is the solution but there's the blinder to the fact that that is in itself benefiting someone you know and i think that t- it, when when the goal is to just create apathy to create confusion to create a, this feeling of chaos it seems that that's Scary simply because that seems so much easier than making people think this one thing. It's so much easier to say, everything's fucked, don't vote, than it is to say, you have to vote for this one person, you know? Um, Absolutely. And I
0: think all of what you just said is right. I think we do have, all of us, even researchers of these topics have blind spots on this, where we're happy to talk about the expansion of populism in Europe, but like Trump's not a populist. It's different. Mm -hmm. We're America. We're not affected by these things, right? Right. And it's, you do see the sort of blindness for your own weakness everywhere, especially on this issue. And I think, in particular, um, you know, <clears throat> information operations, propaganda are never about information, right? The, the end goal of all of it is behavioral change of some kind. Right? And maybe it is. It maybe it is. You know, not doing something as the end goal. Maybe it is doing something as the end goal. Um, but we do have concrete examples and more than one, of that working, of right. there being from the specific Russian campaigns that we knew were going on in 2016, um, areas where, and the earlier ones in the tests in 2014, 2015, er- earlier ones where there were concrete behavioral change outcomes from the campaigns that they were running. And you can sort of laugh at them if you want sometimes, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> like right. it, it still made people act differently, and I right. think that's the key. And so, yes, I think that's, That's kind of the thing. In all of the sort of best examples of Russian disinformation that have been analyzed since Crimea, since the invasion of Crimea, um, in particular where there's been this new focus on the sort of whole realm of of influence and things, um, they are never trying to convince you of one thing. They are trying to put forth 28 warring narratives. I think the UK sort of documented like 56 different narratives about why Russia wasn't responsible for poisoning their people. Um, you know, but, and so there's so many different things. You look at them all and say, no one can know anything, Mm -hmm. you know, fuck it. I don't care. Right. And that, but that is such a powerful tool of behavioral change uh, and population control of getting people not to care about things. Like how many people do you hear now who just say, I don't want to talk about politics in the U S uh, in France, in, in the UK, I don't want to talk about Brexit. Like I just want to get on with it. Um, where the information overload aspect is too much for most people. Um, nobody wants to live in any, and no one in any country in any environment wants to live in like a heightened state of potential conflict and threat and fear right. and, and crisis and chaos all the time. It's just too much. No one wants to do it. Um, and it's a really easy way. If you sort of press the button enough times, people just disengage completely. So it's an easy way to then kind of de facto win arguments right. by not winning them at all. Um, which sounds lazy and sort of chaotic, and it is, but um but it works A- and we see it work and you see it on issues where there should be tremendous moral clarity, where enough counter narratives have been put up that even smart sensible people will say well we can't really know but you know and it's like yeah we can know and right. there's no but um <laughs> these other 25 things are not real right um and i think in the us you've seen so many examples in the past few years of not just republican but primarily republican uh congressmen and senators Um, asking questions and hearings about things that are completely conspiracies, not for the point of debunking them or pointing out that this isn't true, um, but because they actually think there's something to it, because the entire information environment they inhabit is about these things, um, that I think we should all be concerned about uh, how information is influencing us, influencing our politics, influencing our country, influencing us and how we make decisions, how we engage in the world. Um, and sort of spiraling outward, what that means for everyone. And I think you're right about the phones and the fact that we all think this is like this amazing remote control to Mm. engage in things in the world and don't see the other side of it, which is people are collecting stuff from us and influencing us and changing our behavior. And if you sit down and explain to someone what the social credit system is in China and the fact that this isn't just like some funny little thing but has like, real life outcomes in terms of accessing jobs and loans and going to prison or being able to leave the country or not you know it sounds really terrible and people are against that but if you point out that the same thing exists in the united states um not as a government thing primarily but like your insurance company offering you discounts if you let them collect all of your data same idea you know like it's it's you know that you have to change parts of your behavior to get the discount, so you're going to do that. It's the same thing. It's behavioral engineering yeah. that's targeting us for specific things, and while it may be a great goal when it's about creating safer drivers um or you know people who are eating better foods or whatever, um it's the exact same thing in terms of this idea of sort of scoring and um uh, data being used uh to advantage or disadvantage us or change how we're behaving. Um, in different ways. And I just think that this, this is such a powerful realm, uh, sort of the gamification of our lives, um, that we haven't really accepted as happening or important. Um, and I don't know why that is. Yeah, I was
1: gonna ask, <laughs> why Why do you think that? I mean, you, you must see it so much. I mean, I even see it. And you know, this is your area of expertise, you must just, it must be, what, it, what is that to you? And not necessarily why, but like, what what's happening there like what what, what is that it, it almost feels like the the oncoming uh uh automation thing i think that some things are so big and so, so so have so many implications that it's that it's like we it's it's like some almost like collective refusal to act on it to do anything about it because it's it's just too much or something it, is that part of it like i, I i'm confused as to what because when i hear this stuff this seems like a a a cause for major alarm and i think that that is why it's a story that sort of at least has lingered in the background and and sort of comes creeps back in every once in a while it's kind of wrapped up in an anti-trump sentiment but it and now but it it's still sort of this more generally alarming thing that i that i my sense is 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 in line with what you're saying which is that people aren't really giving a shit. And I, and I just don't get why. And I know it's you just very, said you don't very know why. It's Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I, it's very alarming, and I agree with what you just said. And yeah. um, uh, I think, again, it's part of the not caring is that it's hard to see. It's hard to believe it's real. It's hard to believe it's happened this quickly. It is a you know, tremendous sea change of technology and tools and, and the way the world works mm-hmm. in two decades or less. And yeah. um, it's really hard to sort of look at that and understand what it really means. When you know, for the most part, for people, what it means is like, well, they, hey, they have Google Maps, so who cares? Right. You know, and and like that's great. Like, I love Google Maps too. Sure. Um, but the rest of it is uh, is really hard to see. Sort of explain the back end of this um, to people, and and you know, the, it's funny because the younger generation just like doesn't care if you tell you know if you ask. Gen Z in particular, like, you know you have no privacy and everything you do is being collected and using to profile you and whatever, and right. they're like, yeah, who cares? Like, I don't, like I just don't care anymore. And that's interesting also. But um, I do think there's this – the economic aspect is, I think, the place where potentially people can learn to care more. Because in many very real respects, um, if you look at where wealth is being generated in the United States in particular, you know, it's not because people are building stuff anymore. It's because of data. The value of Uber is not that they pick people up and drive them places. It's that it's a data company. The value of Airbnb has nothing to do with renting houses. It's because it's a data company. You know, the value of Rent the Runway has nothing to do with clothing. It's because it has this huge back end of data Mm. that is collected on things that it's using to model AI and algorithms. That is its value. And I think helping people understand that, that like the same way there was sort of the labor revolutions in previous centuries, this understanding that um, you know, corporate wealth comes from the input of individuals into then labor like you needed doesn't matter if, you know, the engineers were the ones who built the company or whatever else, like the guy digging the coal out of the ground still really mattered and, and had a value in the company and deserved mm-hmm. to be compensated for his his role in creating wealth for that company um like that sort of revolution but this idea of labor has a value that needs to be compensated is very much where we need to be focused on data right the idea that data is the new labor and in de facto right now there's like data slavery and just none of us see that the wealth of of these companies is being generated from us Uh, and some of them try to say well you know you're getting a free service so that's what we're compensating you Uh, Mm. that's not really true it's completely disingenuous um And when that is then being turned back on us to control us and change our behavior and all these other things, um, just, I think that there's this, I don't know how to tell that story better. Right. Um, clearly we're not telling it well, or more people would care, but the idea that like, it would really freak you out if you sat down and talked about how the police state works in China and that neighbors report on people and, and, you know, because they don't want to be, they don't want to get in trouble for not reporting something. So they'll call it in. Right. Like right. that, no one likes that. Everybody says, oh, please state that. But, you know, no one wants to talk about the fact that your neighbor's ring is like doing the same thing to you. Right. Right. And, and like and we're participating in these things voluntarily. Because right. we think that they provide a service to us. Totally. Um, and like, okay, fine. I'm fine with your packages not getting stolen. But <laughs> I don't really want everybody visiting my house to be part of some facial recognition. Totally, system yeah. That someone's building. And so I just think that's kind of the space where it's not about privacy, it's like this whole new category of conversation about how wealth is generated, where it is coming from, how it relates to us, um, and and what all these tools really mean, um, because when it comes to the conversations about automation and the future of work, what the hell are people with nothing to do? Right. And at first it was sort of this very elite conversation, like, well, who really cares if the stupid auto workers can't build cars anymore? Like, right. they can figure out something else to do, and we'll just sit here and write our columns about things. <laughs> but now AI is designing stuff and picking what movies are going to get made and writing columns and, and involved in all this creative work, and now everybody's feeling a little more insecure And I just think, again, this is this whole space where we really need to have a real conversation about what is governance in a world where um, automation is very real and where work and labor are no longer real issues to discuss. Um, You know, what is the value of democratic governance, um, the interaction between government and society in, in this totally revamped interaction system of, of benefits and, and, you know, laws and frameworks, um, we're not anywhere near having those conversations Yeah. of how real the disconnect is between the digitization of everything and how we rule ourselves. Um, and this is part of this right now, the digital authoritarians are winning and the rest of us are sort of over on the side watching Netflix. Um, and and I don't know how to get past that barrier, but it's really important that we do.
1: Yeah, you mentioned something earlier, th- this idea that Gen Z, uh, the younger generation growing up, sort of having the, it, it be the they're, – they're in the for, forever war, never war, I think is the way you put it, which is I think it creates this weird zone where there's no threat of them of war breaking out here and there hasn't been for a long time. But yet we're at war and we, and there's an awareness of that, that we've been at war and there's almost this, it's like this, you can just hand wave that away. Like that war has been going on so long. It's almost not real. You know, if you've been living with those wars in the Middle East your whole life, America's engagement with them, then th- there's this weird idea of war as being not here, wherever you are, you know, it's not close to you. And I think it creates this weird sort of, zone in tandem with this idea of they've grown up with Facebook with all these things and privacy is just not what it was to the generation prior or any other generation before it. You know, there's so I feel like it's this, it's this double edged thing where war is, is a real thing. It's going on forever, but it's never going to happen here. And privacy, who cares? Everybody has Facebook. You know, there's this idea that if everybody's participating in it, I can't not, A, I can't not, but if everybody's participating in it, how bad could it really be? You know? And I think that because they're sort of removed from generational threat, really, you know, I mean, they, 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 they're able to become, I don't know if lazier is the right word, but I guess more apathetic about these things, you know? And I, and I don't know, as you're saying, just sort of the way to frame it to say, hey, this is, a fucking big deal you know but it's hard to convince someone who's never had to really think about shit like that you know and is very removed from ever having to think about shit like that so it's this weird mix of the ease of life now mixed with the lack of experience of of democracy or democratic ideals really being under threat at all in their lifetime you know
0: it's really true, and I think that, that, you know, it's it's very canned and corny to sort of say, like, oh, you know, we've never really had to fight for our values, but it's really true.
2: It is true, um, yeah.
0: the, the wars that we have fought for a long time don't ask us as societies to make any sacrifices, um, and yes, the exception to that is, of course, families of service members and others who are in the line of fire on these things, but as a society, we do not, we have not sacrificed anything for the war in Iraq. Like, yes, you can complain about, you know, government spending, and yes, right. there should be more social benefits, and not so much Pentagon spending, whatever. But we don't give up sugar, like, where there's no rationing, and you know, right, yeah. can't not get places because of these wars. Like, this is not the wars of yesteryear where there's a tremendous impact and the mobilization of society writ large. Mm-hmm. Um, we just go on about our days, and then these things happen, and it seems really far away, and none of us really have to pay attention unless you choose to, mm-hmm. or unless you have a family member directly involved. Right? Um, and so there is that, and I think um, that kind of detachment from everything does affect uh younger generations more in this country, but also because of this connected to everything sentiment. Um and I find it I just find it fascinating that like the idea that you can know anything about anyone as soon as you want to know it is just reality yeah. is, you know, <laughs> incredibly troubling yeah. to anybody who grew up before the internet. I know. But um for them, it's just what it is. Yeah. And and this, this idea of the erosion of borders, if you're living online, everything looks like you because you're not looking at the other stuff, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So this idea, the sort of Facebook nicey-nice universe of there's this supranational structure of Facebook where we're our own nation and everybody thinks the same, which is not at all true, but they sort of project this ideal sometimes. Um, I think a lot of younger Americans in particular kind of live in that space, mm-hmm. Um and, and just believe that some of the truly tremendous generational changes in terms of views of uh, themselves, of tolerance, of acceptance, of inclusivity, of the environment, of all these things where they have their head screwed on more straight, um, where all of the things where they've had these sort of, look, this is fine, can we stop talking about it issues, mm. are not things the rest of the world accepts, um, and are things that are still very much being fought for yeah. in a lot of places. Um, and i really just it's this bizarre everything is the internet that i see thus the rest of these things don't exist problem right that i think affects many people and it's not just the younger people it's everyone it's older people who have discovered 4chan so they can follow qAnon as yeah. well and um but but we're all very prone right now to seeing our own tiny sculpted environment as the only world there is which is allowing a lot of us to ignore real challenges, problems, conflicts, threats to the things that we actually know are important, even if we're going to be cheeky and sort of sit there and say, democracy is the same as authoritarianism, isn't it, man? <laughs> like, it's not. And <laughs> and when confronted, people will acknowledge that. Yeah. But um, I just don't think there's been, there hasn't been the confrontation to the value, to like having to stand up for the values. Yeah. Um, For the younger generation. And so much of this is sort of wrapped up in the nonsense world discussions that have never ended since the beginning of the Iraq war. Um, And the normalization now of saying really bigoted things like... Well, not everybody is ready for democracy. The Arabs just can't have it, whatever. And like normal, very progressive lefty people will say things like that the same way that people on the right will say things like that. Right. And not hearing what they're saying, which is like the shit that we have that makes us great, that makes us safe, that makes us prosperous, like nobody else can have it. And understanding how ridiculous it is to say stuff like that out (laughs) loud. Um, we just haven't had a confrontation on any of that because the Iraq war has like erased our ability to have normal conversations about freedom and democracy and human rights. And um, it, it's funny because, you know, for all of us who sort of started our careers around that time period, mm-hmm. again, aging ourselves
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and, and are now back seemingly at the beginning of that loop again with what's going on now. Yeah. <laughs> with, with the East. Um, it's been a really interesting couple of weeks for, my peer group to sort of sit around and navel gaze at where we were, where we have been and where we've gotten back to. And just this feeling of, of disconcertedness about where everything is, where the country is, um, where the next generation of leaders will come from. Yeah. um, And who will fight for the stuff that actually does really matter to us and to people that support our values around the world um when right now we're not
1: even doing it yeah it's it's i it's like the, there really is just it's just like too much distance from having to fight for these things like there's like several generations now haven't really had to it's been sort of a given and it's allowed a couple maybe generations now to just sort of live in it and exp- and and feel like it's just the way the world is or something like their existence is just the way it is it, and and they've always been afforded the ability to be this way or something you know and 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 it, 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 you know to to look at the to take a longer view historically of where we're coming from and where we might be going is to maybe sort of stir uh or, or ring an alarm bell you know but i think it's easy now to be so distracted and to be so uh contented and comfort comforted just throughout the course of any given day there's no real threat to you uh that i i think that it it it's hard to make people engage with these broader ideas and ideals of of you know uh, uh democratic ideals and things like this it's harder to make people think understand that they actually are or at least could be under threat and at least could fucking go away you know i think that that's not a reality Absolutely. to people yeah
0: but so much of this is about identity and the core identity of who we are as Americans and for a long time have never questioned this, right? Yeah. I mean, it comes in different forms. Uh, there was the greatest generation generation and the we're fighting communism generation and the we fought for, fought for civil rights generation. But the core of all of that is the same idea of we are fighting for a more perfect democracy. We believe in these things, uh, you know, coming from different sides. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the, but the totally. core of all of that was this idea that we are a great nation that will do great things and I really do feel badly for the younger generation who doesn't seem to believe that and doesn't seem to have had that experience or a thing that they've define as their identity in this space. And I really wish they would find a thing to fight for that would give it to them. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, it's hard to have this when, you know, Americans have a terrible, terrible understanding of history all the time. Mm,
2: <laughs> like yeah,
0: yeah. we are lazy about history. We don't know any of it. Uh, and, and it would be great if we knew more, but, um, <laughs> But you know the narratives that form who we are in the sort of media is now everything post Cold War world. Um, you know, look, look at the influences around us. You know, the the punchline of ninety percent of television and movies is the U.S. government is actually the bad guy. Right. And um, and you know it makes for nice TV sometimes, but but in the environment of the post-Rock War <laughs> environment, it sort of feeds back into this idea that that our government is always bad and has never done anything good and we're actually the worst. So let's go out right now and talk about how Iran is good and right and pure right. and like Trump is the worst and like, okay, some of us don't really like Trump and that's fine, but let's not go too far on the Iran is good and pure and has noble intentions lane. Like, let's just leave that alone. Right. Um, And I just, sometimes I just don't think we hear what we're saying and how we are denigrating ourselves as a nation, not to say again, that we should not discuss our flaws and mistakes and weaknesses. It is what we have always done well is self-evaluate and self-reform and self-correct when that is needed. Um, But to sort of end the cycle of criticism, and look to the, and what are we building next within the system of values that has served us well as one republic since forever? Um, You know, how do we reform that? Um, And right now what you have from the most transformative voices on the left and on the right is a deep belief that government is bad, that government will do nothing for you, that government is doing nothing for you, that Washington is the problem. And when both sides are sort of in this lane of repeating that message in different ways, Um, which has a strongly isolationist bent to it, which is, I mean, saying troops should come home because building the wall is the same as troops should come home because clean water in Detroit. Like, this is the exact same narrative of having no vision for America and the world, um, coming from totally different motivations and intentions, obviously. Mm -hmm. I just don't think we sit and look at this enough and actually think about who we are and the society we want to shape and build and the individuals within that society and how we call on them to serve um, and what that means, and um, it, and obviously this is a huge, huge conversation. Many people try to be in this space and uh, uh, influence it in different ways, but this sort of idea that like government is terrible and will do nothing for you that has been the core amplification narrative of the right for the last 30 years mm-hmm. and for parts of the left in the last decade – like, it really needs to stop. <laughs> we yeah. really need to reinvest in the idea that there will be some kind of government and it will have to do something for the population. So what does that look like
1: now? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's almost like, you know, the, the, it's like throwing the – it's the ultimate throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, has yeah. the government sucked? Does it suck? Does it do bad shit? You can just go down yeah. the list and say yes, <laughs> you know, but that doesn't mean that the, the mechanisms in place do, that, that select that government – that allow us to live the life that we live is also just meaningless or bullshit or, or actually bad. You know, it's not, you can't just get rid of all of it or not give a fuck about all of it or write all of it off because a lot of it matters for the, there's, there's a so much of a, of a trickle trickle down effect. You know, it's not like just because these, it, I think it's wrapped up. I think what it really is, is that I think it's wrapped up in this like anti, Anti-West almost thing, right? It's like, but we've done so much bad shit, and that is true. But that can be true while also having something within it being necessary to preserve, you know. And I don't, I don't think you need to. We need to sit around and say, "Well, all governments bad. It's always going to be bad," and that means that the democratic institutions that we have are bad as well, and the things that led to the government being shitty. Are bad as well it's not every fucking thing sucks you know we do need certain pillars of of the things that we believe in more broadly and that shit does actually matter and i think that what to just sort of connect it to what you were talking about before about the apathy i mean it, it just feeds back into this the hands of our adversaries really and and i think that it's just like it's creating this perfect loop, you know, uh, and we're taking that extra step sort of on our own, really, you know, uh, to Absolutely. reach that. Like ultimate the Russians attitude.
0: don't need to do anything when we're setting ourselves on fire. And that's where they are right now. is right. Like Sitting over there with their Cheetos laughing at this whole thing. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's but that's really the key point is, you know, it is entirely possible for us as a, as a society to say, hey, this thing we did was not smart and bad and ill informed. Um, and then find a way to correct it, and not just criticize ourselves forever about it. Right. Um, while also saying, and we are also the right people to find a find a way to solve the thing where China has two million Uyghurs in a camp. Like right. you can you can have those things simultaneously, where you cannot have it on the other side. And I think the the challenge that I really see in terms of you know belief systems, beliefs, and power of how things work, of how things are organized right now, um, it sort of connects back to this silicon valley monolith control Mm. idea but where you have these companies that are run by individuals um who have these tremendous capabilities and power in terms of how they can influence economies and nations and democracy and everything else um who in many cases believe that's how stuff works best right Mm because that's how they've built their companies Mm -hmm. and 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 When you sort of project that onto how they interact with the world, you kind of have these eerie conversations with tech execs and Silicon Valley types and like all of the sort of weird techno libertarian space people um, where you try to press them on things like, well, right, but democracies are best positioned to confront many of these challenges Mm -hmm. that face us like climate change? And they'll just go, mm, because they don't believe it. They think that authoritarian countries can can confront things like climate change more effectively. And when climate change is sort of the primary global problem for so many on the left and so many in the younger generation, and rightly so, this mm. is not something that should be ignored or right. whatever. Um, but when that does become the primary motivation of how you're looking at, at government and change and abilities to do things, this idea of well, a couple of guys working together might be able to fix it more than like people voting on stuff becomes so toxic and so dangerous because yes, it is true, but um but what are you sacrificing for that and like the the idea that you no longer need to convince voters of things that you're just sort of like a reflection of polls and you'll <laughs> like no, that's not what leadership is, like voters have never wanted to do the right thing. your job as a leader is yeah. to convince them of stuff <laughs> like, that's how it works <laughs> and um uh it, you know it's just. That, so, I think that that I think is a really dangerous space, this idea of um it is actually better when stuff is centrally controlled by a few people um that everybody seems willing to sort of play with right now on the thing they care about most, right um Republicans have sacrificed what they really believe in for the judges and the guns and whatever other talking point bullshit yeah. and uh, on the left you see it in in the context of talking about. Uh, you know, more real threats, but things like climate change, environmental standards, and, and other issues. Um, and I just, like, again, everybody kind of needs to take a deep breath and, uh, <laughs> and like, back away from that, yeah. back away from the idea that, like, the Council of Eight will be the thing that decides <laughs> everything. Um, democracy is messy, but there's a reason that it works. And the reason that it works tends to be that um, we all have to be involved in the decisions being made about our lives and about ourselves. And this sort of circles back to where we started a bazillion years ago um, in terms of of why the information environment matters so much when so much of what is trying to influence us now is misinformation, disinformation, behavioral engineering crap. Where the quality of news, particularly in the English language, uh, is not awesome Mm -hmm. at this exact moment, um, where we're making decisions in different ways that are subversive to our own interests. How do we fix this challenge with no leadership? Which is what the West is facing right now. Yeah. Um, where is the next generation of Churchills and whoever else who will show up and yell in our faces about the problems that we're facing and prevent and you know sort of present solutions to things? Um, there isn't one right now. Yeah. And I don't know how we fill that gap when uh, cultural elite, when corporate elite, when others are so focused on the wrong issues and self-gain and self-control and self-power that um, right now very few corporate elite, and there are some that I think actually have good intentions and uh-huh. good focus on things, um, but very few are focused on this idea of how do we actually solve problems for the purpose of good right. um, without having ridiculous conversations about like, well, we just need a lot less people and then everything will be fine. <laughs> like, well, that's not how that works. yeah um, So it is just this, there's like this overlap of, of power and ideology that's happening that is really moving away from the idea that um, the idea of participatory governance is a good idea or a thing that matters, which is then overlapped by um, the terrible information environment that we all cohabitate at this exact moment. Um, and unraveling these things requires a lot of focus and a yeah. lot of leadership, and that moral core of identity that we used to all share and perhaps don't anymore. Um, it's it's it is this. You look at it, it's the abyss. You want to look away immediately <laughs> and like watch some Netflix show and feel better. And uh, I do the same thing. But, sure, um, yeah, me too. But but I do think more of us need to talk about it um, because it's not going to get better and it's not going to get easier, and we will soon be at a point where. We have given up so Mm -hmm. much of the decision-making ability for our lives, our families, our communities, our societies um, without realizing that we've done it and without being asked about it um, that it will be too late without major sort of revolutionary change, which I don't think anybody is prepared
1: for right Right. You you mentioned something uh, earlier that I think about a lot and this idea that uh, Americans... uh, are not so versed in, in history. And, and uh, I can't help but think that this, uh, this, I guess, I don't know, recent maybe, uh, move toward, toward, um, authoritarianism, put the power in the hands of the few, not the many. I would imagine has to in part be because people just don't know the history of <laughs> directions like that. Of nations that take directions like that, you know, I, I find that if you just think about the times that that has happened in history, when a more democratic zone or possibly democratic area ends up going to a more authoritarian direction, nothing good ever happens, you know, and and even if the even if your issue gets served, let's say we're on the left and we want people who are extremely far left to be in power, to be the few that make the decisions. They're not going to be the few that make the decisions forever. Someone else is going to be making the decisions after that. And if they have the power to do whatever the fuck they want to, they could just do shit. You all, you really don't want to happen. So it can't just be the single minded immediate focus of you and what you want, because then that's going to expire and someone else is going to get to do whatever the fuck they want. And there's no controlling that or even foreseeing what those people might want to do at any point or who they might be or anything like that. So the idea that to put the power in the hands of the few, it's just never a good idea. And I think that that is something that people don't know. And I find that strange because it's, if you yes, one look totally at history, right. <laughs> one look at history is just, it's just a one long lesson. To not fucking do that you know
0: it is basically one long message of not fucking doing that yeah. and and times when 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 the control from the few has eroded being positive transformative moments in history right. um, being really important to how we've ended up here yeah I, it, it's exactly right and um, I just in in multiple iterations whether it be the sort you know like the laziest explanation of what Marx was talking about in terms of power structures was it's kind of the anti-democracy, but, but, but the total democracy, you know, we're all just the same. So it doesn't matter if this council of us is in charge because we will make the right decisions for all of us. Yeah, sure. Okay. That worked out great. Right. Um, no, I just, I I do think there is this like laziness about history and and part of that is about the American educational system and we can all bitch and moan about that in different directions for forever, I'm sure. But, um, but we do need to, know history better. And Americans tend to know history from our own perspective, from our families. You know, if you have a grandfather who fought in World War II, or a great-grandfather who fought in World War II, or a father who fought in various wars, uh, or a mother who fought in various wars, then you know a little more about these things than than others in terms of the identity aspect. Right. But yeah, we suck at history. We need to know more. We need to understand more about why what we are such an anomaly and so important right? and why countries like Russia and China hate it so, so much and are very focused on eroding the idea that what we are is something that is good and powerful. Um, and I just, I don't know why we have gotten to this point, which is such a low point in how we see ourselves and our history and what that means. Um, and some of the nonsense debates you see, particularly on social media, but, you know, this debate between... Uh, The one that sticks with me from Mm. the last few months um, as a particularly awful example of how stupid our discussions of history have become (laughs) is um, the woman who was in charge of the 1619 Project for the New York Times
2: Mm. got in
0: a fight with one of the most preeminent scholars of the Civil War in the United States online Mm. um, about uh, whether or not all of history – is really about, or all of American history is really about racism and slavery or whether there's other stuff. Right. And the, the sort of Civil War scholars' point was, look, all these things you're saying are true, but in every aspect of what you're talking about, you know, white Americans led these movements to help fight these things. Right. White Americans fought a civil war to end slavery which is sort of going through and saying you can't make the definition of American history purely about racism because it is not true. Right. And the ensuing fight online and the nonsense it stirred up, um, to me this is such a problem, this idea that we cannot have shared history. We cannot have mm. shared good points in history. It all has to be some aspect of identity politics. That's corrosive. Whether your point is about inclusion or whether your point is about racism and identity politics uh, in terms of how the far right you know sees things, it's not good. We yeah. do have shared history. We do have shared values. We have fought common wars and common challenges and common struggles internally to fight these moments where we fuck things up and then we have to look at it and be like, hey, we really fucked this up. Right. We need to get it right. Um, And the moments where we're now, like, not willing to give people credit for that, like, you know, there's Republican senators who are super conservative and maybe people that people don't love so much on other issues, but who have really fought to get historical acknowledgement of the internment of the Japanese in World War II because it was in their states. It was in these vast, empty Western states where these prison camps were set up. Um, And so just things like that where we do have the shared struggle to and explain our history better Um, and we just need to take it more seriously as a collective goal and not an identity group driven goal Mm. and i think that will help us get back to where we need to be Um, and i don't know how to do that obviously (laughs) everything has become like siloified identity politics and uh it's not getting any better but um but i just think the core of what we are and what we have been as a nation has always been different and distinct and better. And I'm willing to say that when others are not because of the fact that we look at our dirty laundry and we go, wow, that's awful. And like, how do we do this better? And we have done that ourselves as an internal process without external intervention, um, to, to fix these problems. And we have had these tremendous transformations, under the same system of values, admitting that we didn't get it right the first time. Right. Um, and we just have moved away from that, and hopefully we're at sort of the low point in the cycle before we have a big revamp. But um, as you said, right now nobody seems to feel like they need to fight for this. Yeah. And the most powerful and influential people in the different aspects of our society, financial, cultural, social, political, don't seem to feel the need to fight for this. Um, and we all live pretty comfortable lives. Yeah. And even, even poor Americans live relatively comfortable
1: Absolutely, lives. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Um, And we just need to understand that other people don't. Right. <laughs> and what it will look like if we sacrifice what we have. Um, but I don't know how to make that point to people more effectively at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when we yeah. Do have this tremendous leadership deficit.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes I just think it's it's the only time people are going to really start to change is when they're forced to. When I think about climate change, when I think about this kind of shit, it's like, or or automation too, like we were talking about, it's like people are going to fucking stand up and start to get worried when like they can see it or feel it, you know, either in their wallet or whatever the fuck. Um, And I think that- Climate change
0: is one of the most frustrating things to me. Uh, One, because I come from a science background, oddly enough, and it drives me crazy when people are like believing in, weird stuff instead of anything that looks like science, Um, and the way that the sort of anti-science argument has become, well, it's just the same as when it comes to climate change. So, I mean, it's really frustrating to me, but the, the thing that is more frustrating to me, if you leave alone these sort of science arguments, is that none of it needs to be this way because there are, in fact, I mean, when you're looking at, like, the 70s and the 80s when people are talking about environmental issues. Right. The acceptance then was like, look, all of this stuff will be driven by sort of market solutions, right? When there's a demand for this stuff, it will happen. And in many cases, this is true. You right. know, demand for solar energy has vastly increased investment into those areas and increased its productivity and its usefulness and driven down costs and everything else. Like, all of these things are true, but there are sort of market-driven solutions um and i don't mean that just in an economic sense to these problems um that do sort of relate to shared values and goals again that i just don't know why we can't drop the nonsense and actually sit down and have a conversation about it like conservative states are the ones that are going to be more impacted by climate change in the united states in many respects yeah and like it, you see it in Idaho, like people understand fire season is worse. There's a lot less snow than there used to be, right? Like yeah. this is not a great thing for us. Um, and you see it in other states that have been underwater for vast portions of the year because of flooding. And um, so I just don't know this this political short circuit of yeah. like, we somehow decide that electing the most crazy people to represent us is going to yield solutions that are productive. Obviously that's not going to work. <laughs>
1: yeah it seems like a bad uh recipe I, um what about i mean i think so much it's it's interesting to me specifically about the uh, the misinformation campaign stuff i i th- uh i think about the conversation still framed about 2016 it's like did it it's first of all it's unbelievably it's still did it happen was it Russia or was it fucking Ukraine? That whole thing, like, let's just leave that alone because that no, is unfucking believable. Um, but uh, I feel like there's maybe not enough conversation about w- the immediate future of. Well, there's actually another election this year, and mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure nothing will be different. If anything will be different, it'll be more refined and a better approach to so chaos and doubt and all that shit that worked uh to varying degrees in 2016 i'm assuming it'll just be a bigger monster this time around but i don't hear that conversation and i'm assuming it's something that's on your mind what is the outlook for that this year in the same just you know it's 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 certainly we haven't yeah. stopped it you know so
0: the the greatest success of Kaiser Solzay was yeah. convincing yeah. everyone he never existed, right? No, it's, it's exactly true. right. And yeah. when we're still having these nonsense conversations about is this real or not, we're ignoring the fact that again, ninety-five nations are now doing this stuff, not necessarily targeting the United States right. with such uh skill and depth and capability and many of them have not had time to build the same types of architecture so don't have the same influence or capabilities or reach. Um, but it's not just foreign actors, it's also domestic Mm -hmm. and, uh, and rogue and, uh, however else you want to describe them, you know, one guy in a trailer in Nevada can decide to launch crazy information campaigns on stuff and be able to do it if you want, um, if you understand how things kind of work. Um, and so I think that, that, but to me, that is, um, the biggest challenge is that, um, you know, it, there was a, there was a good example of this the other day, um, Graham Brookie, uh, who's the head of of DFR lab, which is one of these sort of, you know, forensic online investigation things that they track a lot of information operations and stuff like that, mm. um, was doing an interview on TV and was kept trying to talk about, like, the thing right now is Iran is really trying to influence the information space on what is happening in the Middle East. And the woman asking him questions just kept asking about cybersecurity. And these are not the same thing, right? right. These are totally different realms of stuff. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes this is our world right now. Totally. But when it comes to the information domain, um nothing has changed since twenty sixteen. And if anything, our protections have gotten weaker. Like yes, Cybercom um has set up infrastructure to monitor state-driven campaigns and their influence and has uh, conducted some operations to disrupt what they see at times, um, which is not really well-disclosed, but it is happening. Um, sure, that's fine. Like, I do have some confidence that things are being done on that side, but it has not changed the fact that Russia, China, others have well-established information architecture that reaches Americans. Right. It doesn't change the fact that we haven't looked at what that means on the left or on the right. It doesn't change the fact that a huge amount of that has been targeting um, American military personnel and veterans. Mm. Um, there's been good documentation of this in a couple of recent reports this year. Um, but uh, at the fact that it's probably influenced opinions on a lot of different policy issues and political things. Um, but I mean, the fact that that all of this is about as much about collecting information from us as influencing us, and what that really means. Yeah. Um, there's all these different aspects of this that we have not confronted or had grown-up conversations about because everything has to be about whether or not we're supporting President Trump. Right, And um, that is so dangerous to us as a society that Americans are completely exposed when it comes to the idea of information defense. Um, we do not have any national infrastructure that will explain to us what an information campaign is that is trying to influence us. You know, we do not have leaders that are willing to, to say things about specific issues or narratives or... Sort of try to dial down the rhetoric. Um, everybody seems to be plugged into the like. Yeah, it's really funny when some congressman that we like or don't like sort of shoots down Trump on Twitter. But this is all just feeding into the to the you know cycle of escalation and rhetoric that yeah. keeps us engaged in these dumb dynamics of information yeah. <laughs> propagation yeah. that are not helping any of us. So I think we're we're in such a deficit when it comes to our own information defense, our own information hygiene, how we see and evaluate information in front of us, and how we make decisions about what's good for ourselves. Um, and then you add into that you know, a bunch of different foreign actors, a bunch of different domestic actors, uh, the well-established machinery run by Brad Parscale of uh, disinformation and influence from the Trump camp, the fact that Democrats now believe they need the same, not all but some, Um, That that on the left you have people trying to do the same types of information campaigns and fake accounts and false architecture because they feel like they need to fight fire with fire. Um, None of this is improving our ability to see truth from fiction um, as Americans, as a a society, as a community. Um, And we really need to focus on ways to stop that cycle and not just feed into it and make it go the direction that we want.
1: If you, um, I think, uh, I think where people really in similar, actually similar way to just the idea of fighting climate change, the idea of fighting this on an individual level, I think is genuinely overwhelming because it puts a lot of, it gives you, not you, you, but anyone who's, who cares about this shit. There's a lot of responsibility in that that means there's a lot of energy required in that, and that's not exactly an Absolutely. easy thing it, to ask of people, you know? So uh, I, I, I've uh, as uh, on an individual level, what what does one do?
0: And particularly when we're talking about the Russian aspect, when you're saying, like, this is a tool of state warfare that's now uh, has the ability to target individuals, like right. sidestepping every layer of national defense, right. and we are now saying it's the job of the individual to protect themselves from that. It's right. just bonkers. It's this consistent fight that I've had with other members of our anti-disinformation community who will just run around waving their plans for media literacy everywhere. Mm. And don't get me wrong, media literacy is great, and Mm -hmm. we should absolutely teach it in schools, and everybody should be more aware of it, but like, there's also pretty good uh, indications that the places where media literacy works tend to be countries where there is this sense of identity and values that sort of Mm -hmm. gives them this moral defense that right now we don't have. Um, and where the love of confirmation bias is still, you know, the all holy grail of everything in terms of how the rest of us see information, whatever we see first, we believe, you right. put something in front of us later that tells us that wasn't true, but we still believe it a little bit at least. Yeah. And, um, that, so I think this idea that, that like helping people improve their media literacy is somehow going to fix all of these problems. is just not true. Yeah. And putting it all on the individual just seems so wholly irresponsible to me. Um, When we're talking about governance and regulation and corporate responsibility and ethics and morals, um, it's such a sidestep of responsibility on having built these tools that are mind-fucking everyone Uh and uh, not having um, seen what's happening soon enough and and telling people about it um, soon enough uh, to be able to do anything about it productively um, so, it really frustrates me, this sort of media literacy yeah. conversation where it's just like, yeah, it's the thing we need, but it's also not the thing that's going to win any wars. Because um, it's a much bigger problem than yeah. being aware of the source of information you consume.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fuck. You know, um, this is, this is <laughs> th- I mean, th- the whole thing is like, uh, you know, I think, again, I just keep coming back to this thing of like, I think the reason, uh, nothing is done about it even though we are reminded of it not i mean some at least maybe not enough but some we, we all know about the dis- disinformation campaign of 2016 we all know it's coming again we all to a certain degree know it's a problem but it's just it's just clearly just going to happen again you know and 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 yet we can all know it's a problem but nothing is it's it's such a weird thing this 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 it's like this grand apathy almost where where you it's always in the news it's always talking point but literally like nothing is different and it's four years later and it's just gonna And now everybody
0: up. just calls what everybody else is saying conspiracy theories and right like that's yeah. the reason not to listen to what they're saying and I, I, all of that is true and i you know you have these moments of there are things of, in terms of personal responsibility that, that we can do online to be better information actors. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the most absolute basic one, which is don't engage with crazy inflammatory content. For example, don't retweet the president, right? Uh-huh. Like I will constantly post things like, "Hey, don't retweet the president, don't hashtag him, don't yeah. put his handle in your tweets, like just leave it alone. Because what he wants, and he says it out loud constantly, is engagement and amplification. And yeah. he like, looks at how many likes he has and how many replies, and that's like when his tweets get more crazy. And you'll post things like this, and smart, influential, verified accounts will like it and retweet it and whatever. But then like five minutes later, they retweet Trump because they have to give their angry comment about it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, you don't understand how any of this works. Yeah, no. it's true, yeah. Um, but even in the most basic sense, I think we're really, really behind... Um, in understanding how these things work and what we as as individual actors do in the information domain. Um, but then there's the sort of broader point of uh, how do we even know it's true anymore when none of us trust the same sources of information or even look at the same sources of information. Um, and... It is jarring. You know, if you're a CNN viewer and you switch over to MSNBC, it's like a totally different universe of information. And those things are pretty closely aligned. If you turn on Fox, it's like you just stuck a fork in your eyeball. But if you're a Fox viewer and you turn on CNN or MSNBC, you have the same feeling of like, who are these people and what are they talking about? I've never heard of any of this before. so true. Because everybody is covering different stories. I mean, I remember this moment in like... It was like the beginning of 2018, but I was over having dinner with um, some uh, conservative Senate staffer friends of mine, and uh, who I love, and who are very normal and not crazy people and, <laughs> at all. And but they do because they're conservative staffers. Like Fox News is in the background, driving right. all day long in offices and whatnot. But um, you know, we were talking about they were asking about some of the hearings and what's going on with the Mueller investigation and whatever else. And I was like, blah, blah, blah. You know, this thing with Cambridge Analytica, yada, yada, yada. And they were like, what? And I was like, Cambridge Analytica. And they had no idea what I was talking about because it's just not covered on Fox, right? And that was like two years into the discussion of all of this. And I mean, they didn't even know what I was talking, like they had never heard the word. And that was just like such a weird moment to me of all of the things that we think we're having discussions on we're just talking to ourselves, and Fox News feels the same way about it. Um, that, that, like that piece, we really need to confront this piece about the responsibility of news and media. Like, it would be great if everything Murdoch owned would just evaporate, because on in three countries they have ruined media in the English language. Yeah. But. Um, uh, but this idea of creating feedback loops, which we all exploit, I mean, there's good examples of the Obama administration admitting they did the exact same thing sure, and yeah. when policy arguments, you know, like everybody does this. But, yep. but the idea of engaging in feedback loops um, uh, in a helpful way, I think we just need to confront more of how we are doing this as a society and what it means to be responsible media and news. And do we even care anymore or is it all just basically entertainment? Um, I don't know how to move that dialogue forward because we know, we know that like CNN at six o'clock in the morning has much better news than CNN at nine o'clock at night because it like moves from news to opinion the same way that Fox moves from news to entertainment in terms of how they categorize what is on TV. Um, like we know that this is happening, but, um, no one seems to be willing to construct an opponent to it. (laughs) And, And um, I yeah. don't know. I mean, obviously, like the money needed to, to shut it down is is the, astonishing. But the, we as individuals can be more aware that uh, our, our outrage is the thing that people crave, and we just need to stop.
1: Yeah, the news thing in particular, it's like that the news, I mean, just the major news outlets, you know, you, as you described, switching from CNN to MSNBC is enough of a jolt, but switching to CNN, from CNN to Fox is like you are literally... In it's a like you've arrived
0: on a different planet,
1: different, completely different universe. And I mean, I used to do it just—I mean, I, I was going to say for fun. It's not fun, but just to like see the difference. For I was, research, yeah. yeah switch absolutely. back and forth, and you're like, <laughs> everything starts to make much more sense. All of the, all of the dialogue happening, and all of the confusion, and all the silo effect shit that you that you know is happening, but it, it sort of crystallizes when you just flip back and forth because you're like, this is. A different fucking world and depending upon which one you're watching that's the world you're in and i think that that system is beyond repair and i think at least to somehow be somewhat optimistic about some of this is that i you know now when i watched you know the five minute news segment where there's like four quadrants of the screen and they're all talking about something to do with trump for sure it's always about trump
2: Usually a tweet. Yeah. Yeah. It's like some it's like <laughs> a very
1: soundbitey thing and everybody's trying to get their sort of snap in, you know, against the other side and it's just like by the end of the five minutes, you've gained and gleaned the absolutely nothing, you know? And 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 that's that regardless of which channel you're watching is is pretty much true, you know. I mean you're just not yeah. going to get a lot of information out of the news and what the fuck is the news for if not getting information out of it you know so i, I think that there <laughs> has to be something else that emerges call it news well, call it whatever
0: counterbalance to the erosion of truth is also uh the emergence of new tools right so mm-hmm. pbs is still wonderful and we should all watch it more even though we don't Same right. with npr but um it, there really has been a flourishing of a uh, in new investigative journalism projects, yeah. local journalism projects that are trying to be nonprofits, self-sustaining, um, you know, sort of local storytelling is the absolute way to hack all of the other bullshit because yeah. it is really hard to lie to people about what is right in front of them. Yeah. You can lie about the world, you can lie about national politics, but people see their own communities for what they are and it's really hard to tell um, tell different stories, uh, when local news sort of counteracts them. But, um, so there's that there's, there's, there's good news stories in there. There's also, you know, different sort of fact checking and online truth telling type of things that have been successful, but, um, there are no systems to sustain them, uh, and certainly not to champion them in many respects. Um, and, uh, it's one of those things where, the people who are investing in all of this can, in fact, create better feedback loops um, by creating more space for long-form journalism, um, for real storytelling, putting more uh, actual reporters on TV, not columnists, talking to each other about their opinions of things, <laughs> um, uh, giving more than a two-minute segment to tell a really complicated story about international problems.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, there are ways to change this. And you and you see it in the way that like, there's a difference between CNN International and CNN. And CNN in the middle of the night news versus CNN at six PM news. Yeah, um, they know what the difference is between news and opinion, um, and the chase for ratings is going to be what it's going to be. But um, there are ways that they can that that all networks and outlets can create more space for the kind of truth telling that is absolutely a critical national service. And if they don't want to be in that business, then I'm not really sure what the hell they're doing. Yeah, um, and we all just need to have a little bit more of a confrontation with them about this
1: yeah yeah i mean uh absolutely agreed uh well we're coming up on an hour and a half molly i this has been amazing i really appreciate your time (laughs) sorry we got really far off the original no i love it it's (laughs) fucking great uh if there's if there's anything else you want to share or talk about uh before we jump off here let's do it but i mean this has been amazing and i really really appreciate your time i don't know if you want to point people on your twitter all that stuff i don't know um
0: well, sure. You know, uh, the, the best place to find me is Twitter. It's at Molly McHugh, M-C-K-E-W. But, um, I do think just as a note of, of something positive, um, hmm. individuals really matter in this process. Yeah. And, and every person that decides to be a better information actor to promote good storytelling and good journalism and good information and not post rage tweets about whatever the president is saying and whatever else is, is, absolutely helping to improve their environment and take the stuff offline as well. If you sit down and have conversations with people, um, it is a much more effective way to uh, both learn how to explain what you want to say. Like I learned how to talk about how I feel about America when in graduate school abroad, because that's the first time I was really confronted on why I believe America is good in a good way. Right. It's the same thing when you have to sit down and have a conversation with perhaps a neighbor or a friend or a family member who believes something completely different from you that you Mm -hmm. think is batshit crazy. Mm -hmm. But if you learn how to sort of have those conversations and short circuit the belief systems in some place or understand why they're saying what they're saying, and why they believe what they believe um, there's ways through this crisis because we are all in fact still one country and a community that largely shares the same values. We're just drifting a bit from understanding that. Yeah. Um, but every individual plays an important role within that system, um, and in particular, making it clear that we expect more from the people who lead us, whether that be corporate, social, cultural, political, or beyond. Um, and I think this diversification of people seeking uh, elected office, um, and I don't just mean you know in terms of race or belief right, right. systems or anything else, but... The difference of background yeah. um, and, and where people are coming from and the experience they bring, I think this will be really important. Um, but uh, individuals matter so much in this process. It's the reason we have a democracy. So be engaged in whatever way you think is useful for you. Um, uh, but find a way to feel like you're plugged in and, and influencing others uh, in a positive direction and not just because you're mad. <laughs> um yeah. And that will improve everything.
1: <laughs> I mean, I agree there, uh, Molly. Thank you so much. Um, I Happy appreciate your it. time, and uh, I'll talk to you soon.
2: Great, <laughs>